0: I'm from Aaron, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I am from Littleton, Colorado. Actually, my home group is the Happy weight group in Englewood, Colorado. I didn't name it. I don't know where they got that name, but I guess it's all right. Um, by the grace of God and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found a need or an excuse to take a drink today. Nor have I found an either an excuse to take a drink since uh, May twenty eighth of nineteen seventy three and for that I'm truly grateful. Um, a couple of people that were down at Cincinnati Cincinnati breakfast came up and said hello, it was kind of that they have an old timers meeting with their breakfast and uh I was really happy to see the gentleman with forty two years. There was a there was a guy down there um in Cincinnati that was sober 45 years, it had sobered up when he was 52.
1: Uh, He was trying to pick up my wife. Uh, He
0: kept coming up to her and going, what are you doing hanging around with this old guy? Uh, God bless him. God bless everybody that's been sober. Uh, I I really traveled all this way and and went through the Chicago airport once again uh, to come here and talk about recovery. I hope you didn't come down to hear drunk stories because you aren't going to get any. Um, I think the only worthwhile thing for me to do to to come away from my family on weekends like this is to to share the message of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous and that's what I intend to do. I wanna describe one drunk the, the drunk isn't even me um I think because it's important um, this uh i i i knew this guy he uh he'd been a drunk since he was in his early twenties and uh chronic um had been married uh somewhere between seven and nine times. Um Women just thought this guy was great until they got him home uh and then they couldn't get rid of him fast enough i don't I don't know what his deal was about women, but I figured he's he had something in there that told him he had to marry him, which is why uh he had two children, a boy and a girl from his first marriage um, and he he drank chronically all his life, never found this program. When he was in his early 60s, he was living in a tar paper shack in Savannah, Illinois, right on the Mississippi River, with a Cocker Spaniel and an old pickup truck. And, uh, and one day, a couple of his drinking buddies went out there and found him, and he had had a massive stroke as a result of his alcoholism. And they took him to Clinton, Iowa to see what they could do for him and eventually transferred him to the Grand Army home in King, Wisconsin uh, to spend the rest of his life. He was paralyzed and uh, he couldn't speak. Actually, he was half paralyzed. And so they put him in a wheelchair and... uh, and in the ensuing 15 years, uh, not one of his ex-wives ever came to see him. Uh, his son or his daughter would come to see him occasionally. And, uh, he had a brother that lived close that, uh, would come and see him occasionally. A couple of years ago, he, uh, he started developing, uh, gangrene in his extremity, or he didn't get gangrene, he lost the the, uh, blood flow in his extremities. And so they went to his brother and they said, we're going to have to amputate his foot, uh, otherwise he'll get gangrene and he'll die from it. And so his brother said, well, go ahead. And so they cut his foot off. And it wasn't very much longer where the, the portion of his leg that was remaining started to turn black and his other foot was turning black. And the doctor came back to his brother and said, "Um, we're going to have to take his leg off uh, up into the thigh somewhere, and we're going to have to take his other foot off. Um, Let me tell you what else is going to happen. As soon as we do that, he's going to start losing circulation in what's left of his extremities, and and at some point we're... uh, There's really going to be nothing left to do. So the option is uh, to go ahead with his surgery or just let him die. It's your call. And his brother decided that the best thing to do is to let him die. Well, he knew that. And in his despair, when people came close to him, he would scream. You know, the four horsemen of alcoholism are terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. Um, About a year and a half ago, he died of gangrene. Um, And he's buried up there behind the hospital. The reason why I tell you this story is because he's my father. Um, uh, And people in my family have been dying like that for generations. And I don't have to um, I wish that I wish that he had found what I found, but unfortunately, an awful lot of drunks don't do that uh, and he didn't so um I drank a lot for a long time. Um, I drank a fifth a day or roughly that. I mean, I'm not sure that even makes any difference. I drank it for a long time. I was a daily drinker. I drank every day. I drank out of control. I had blackouts. I abused all those people around me. I did everything the drunks do. Um, I did it for a long time, and I despaired of it. And in 1967, I started looking around for a solution. I've always known that there's a solution in alcoholics anonymous. I've known it intuitively. Um, I I started going occasionally to meetings in 1967, and from that point forward to 1973, when I got sto- sober and stayed sober. And I would go in there about half hammered or half looped up on some kind of tranks or whatever, or both, or whatever. And I would I would let I would go in there as some sort of poor pitiful drunk and people would stroke me and say I was going to be fine. And uh, just between me and you, that's the biggest lie you can perpetuate to a drinking drunk, because they aren't going to be fine. Uh, I was in no position to listen. Uh, and finally, in 1973, I was so wasted and burned out by alcohol that I really didn't have any any other options ex- except just to die. Uh, my family had left. Uh, I was living in an empty house, um, and the last day I drank, uh, I really got torn up. And the next day, a couple of people came in 12 step me and put me in front of a priest that ran a halfway house, and he asked me some interesting questions. He said, are you through? You know, it's a good question to ask a drunk. Are you all done? That's the first thing out of my mouth when I see a drunk. I mean, I really don't want, uh, um, my life is so good today, I hate to waste a lot of time.
1: Uh,
0: I mean, it really is. It's, uh, it's pretty incredible. Um, and that's the first thing out of my mouth, and that was the first thing out of his mouth is, are you all through? And I was all through and I knew it. You know, I couldn't live one more day like that. I just couldn't stand to be drunk one more time. Uh, he said, Do "You want what we have?" And you know, I didn't—I really didn't care what he had. I just didn't want what I had. Uh, I would have taken anything else and trade in, and given a few bucks to boot. Um, And he said that there were some things that I was going to have to do to sober up, and the first question he, that he asked me is, do you believe in God? And I told him no. And he told me that I had to go home and try and figure one out, um, which I think was a sweet thing to do. The book says we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we're like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. You know, I'm really not ever going to be like other people. I'm always going to be an alcoholic. Um, the book has some interesting descriptions of alcoholics. Uh, when people come into the program and they say, well, I don't really know if I'm a drunk, there's some descriptions in there. If when you honestly want to, you find you can't quit entirely. Okay. That means that if you say, I'm never going to do this again, do it again. Uh, or once you start, you have little control over the amount you take. Which means, I'm going to go have two drinks on the way home, and I don't get home, and I don't have two drinks. Uh, uh, it says if those things, either or of those things, is going on in your life, you're probably an alcoholic. There's a description in the book of it mentions casually social drinkers. I always think that's funny. Um, I have two older sons that are social drinkers. They drink a beer and they leave half of it sitting there. It just drives me nuts. Uh I I you know, I go, Aren't you gonna drink the rest of that? And they go, I don't think so. uh, uh the book talks about a heavy drinker. is a heavy drinker, not an alcoholic. It says that that person can wind up in uh in a hospital for alcoholism. They can wind up in front of a judge uh for a divorce or accidents or whatever uh, They can have all kinds of problems um, with relationships and jobs and things like that um But if there is a sufficient enough reason, they can stop. And they use the example of a doctor telling them they have to quit or a loved one saying, stop now or I'm gone. If there's a sufficient reason, they can stop. But what about the real alcoholic? The real alcoholic can't stop. And at some point, he will lose all control. I. I belong to a group that does the work over and over again. Um, We believe in steps. And incidentally, that's really what I came here to talk about. Um, uh, This is what I believe. I believe the 12 steps are spiritual exercises, and they're to help me get closer to God. Um, We are at some disadvantage because every alcoholic that I've ever met uh, feels that if three is good, twelve is better, except when it comes to steps. <laughs> uh, my sponsor told me that if I would, if I would follow the directions in the big book, that I never had to drink again. But he said, when you follow the directions, follow the directions. And there is no room for poetic license. That means you do it just the way it says to do it. And then you don't have to drink anymore. And I found out, incidentally, that following someone else's directions that I didn't agree with had some real spiritual value. Because I never had to drink again. Uh, when I... When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, it wasn't difficult for me to see I was an alcoholic. I knew it in no uncertain terms. I mean, I'd just been living with it. But what happens today, I'm 18 years sober, and I go back through the work, and I have to, you know, I don't start at four. So, what's my perspective today on the first step? Am I really an alcoholic? It always makes people a little uneasy, because... But I have to take a look at that. You know, And I, you, you need to do what you do. But it's important for me to consider that I may not be. Because if I don't have a solid first step, I don't think I have anything. And so I go back when I'm in that process and I look at it again. And I see myself with my wife and two young sons, and she's asking me, if she can please have some money for groceries because we don't have anything to eat. And I'm telling her, no, I can't. And she'd say, it's only two bottles of booze. And I'd tell her I'm sorry. Or that my sons needed clothes to go to school and I couldn't give them to them because I had to drink. And it was only a bottle of booze. And when she said, I'm going to leave you because I can't stand to live with you anymore, um, I asked her what was keeping her. Uh When the doctors in Minnesota told me that I would be dead in four years from a heart attack or a stroke because my cholesterol level was way over 400, Uh it didn't even slow me down. There's nothing. I don't care. Death. Uh uh, abandonment. There's absolutely nothing that an active alcoholics are afraid of in my estimation. That's why you can't scare a drunk. You know, if you want to go tell them war stories, that's great, but you aren't going to scare them. We all got our own war stories and they're all going on in here. Well, I'm a real alcoholic and I'm willing to look at it and that's what I do every time I go through the work. Um, The step two in Alcoholics Anonymous talks about being even willing to believe. When I came into AA uh, uh, and this priest asked me if I believed in God, and I told him no, and he suggested I go find one. Uh, I was willing to go find one, not because I wanted to find one, but because I didn't want to drink anymore. And so I remember going home and sitting there having hallucinations, incidentally, and, uh, and really hairy ones. I've never seen anything like that on Saturday morning cartoons yet. Uh, uh, and trying to, trying to figure out how to communicate with God. I was trying to touch Him somehow and I didn't know whether you had to speak in Old English or New English or be on your knees or your back or your stomach or sitting or standing or what to do. And so I tried them all, hoping that He would listen if He was there. Um, the book says if we're even willing to believe upon this simple cornerstone a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built and I believe that's truth that whole spiritual structure is based on a willingness to believe um, it talks about power it's just that stuff's wonderful you know it's really a great book I have to tell you that <laughs> you really ought to read it it's uh <laughs> It says lack of power is our dilemma. It, it, I think he has. I think when Bill Wilson wrote this, he had this just wonderful uh, attempt at understatement. Lack of power is our dilemma. Go to a new drunk who's sitting there slobbering on his shirt and say, "Tell me about all the power you have in your life. Uh, do you have the power to get a job? Do you have the power to stay in a relationship? Do you have the power to put money in the bank?" Do you have power enough power to have other people want to be around you? Uh do you have the power just to take care of yourself? And then you see that the, the lack of power truly is our dilemma. You know, lack of power the the uh the fallacy in that is that I always thought the power was mine. You know a lot of us grew up on that kind of Jack Armstrong bullshit. Where it was <laughs> where it was just like, I'll do it. And so we go out there and do it and fall flat on our face and wind up in an intensive uh, uh, care ward. And I don't have any power. I don't have any power today. You know, I am sure glad God can do for me what I can't do for myself because I can't get up here and do this. Uh, It talks about power... It describes the power. it's of that power which is God. So I know what the power is. I know what to plug into or what I'm plugging into. Um, it talks about once we make this decision about willingness to believe, that we feel new power flowing in. And then it talks about people who where the central fact of their life is the, is the presence of God. And it says that those people have power, peace, happiness, and a sense of direction. Okay? That's wonderful. That's everything I ever wanted. Power, peace, happiness, and a sense of direction. That means I know I feel good and I know which way to go. And then it talks about what you can do with it, the family afterwards. It talks about people laughing at sort of, well, inopportune times. You know when you hear some guy saying and then I broke my leg and fell under the truck and got squashed and uh and then my wife spit on me and I went to the hospital and everybody goes ha ah. <laughs> And it talks about having a good time. Uh why shouldn't we? It says we have re- we have recovered and we've been given the power to help others. To the best of my knowledge there's no place in that book that says I have the power to help myself. When, uh, I was sober about three months and I was still sitting on my hands and sweating and carrying on and I was afraid people were going to ask me something and afraid they weren't going to ask me and you know how confusing that period is. <laughs> and, uh, and my sponsor said, why are you sober? And I've always been in sales or marketing and so I gave him the sales and marketing answer which is, it's because I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, horse manure, Uh, you hung around here since 1967, you never got sober before, what's the difference? And I really didn't know. He said, is your diet different? And I said, no. And he said, are are you exercising? And I said, no. And he said, are you going to work every day? And no. Um, What's different? Are you praying? Yeah. Did you do that before? No. Do you believe in God? I really don't know. And he said, uh, would you consider that you're sober today by the grace of a God you don't even believe in? Yeah. Yeah. And I still do. You know, I believe in God today, but I don't know what he looks like. Uh, I hear his voice in you, and I see him in you, and I know that he's way down in here because the book says so. Because the book says that that ultimately God is deep down within all of us. And so, let, let me suggest something to you. If that's the truth, and I haven't any reason to believe that anything in the big book is not the truth, and God is truly inside it, Then instead of being outside trying to get in, he's inside trying to get out. Um, And so my responsibility is to take all those things that obscure him away and to let him shine out. in the book it talks about God in all of us but he's sometimes obscured by calamity and a whole lot of other things and so so what I truly want to do is to remove that uh and that's actually that's part of the third step um The book says, in the second step, it says, Crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could neither postpone nor evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that God either is or he isn't. He's either everything or he's nothing. And then it says, what's your decision to be? There's a decision there. I have to decide that. What's God? What's God going to be for me? My self-imposed crisis isn't just my alcoholism. My self-imposed crisis is that I can't fix myself. My crisis is that I have alcoholism and I can't stop it. It'll kill me and I can't stop it. Unfortunately, the book says no human power can relieve my alcoholism, which means you can't fix it either. Okay? Okay. So if I can't fix it and you can't fix it, who's going to fix it? The next line in the book is, here we're squarely confronted with the issue of faith. You better believe it. Because if I can't fix it and you can't fix it, that only leaves one person to fix it. And that's God. Um the book starts talking about what alcoholism really is in the third step and it, it says selfishness, self centeredness, that we think is the root of our problem, and it starts talking about the actor. And it starts talking about alcoholism what alcoholism really is, that it's all these manifestations of self which kept us from the sunlight of the spirit. And that's what my alcoholism is. And my sponsor's telling me this and it doesn't seem connected. He said, you know, uh, once you make a decision to live by spiritual principles, which is what the third step is about, you're going to be faced with selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, and that's what your alcoholism is. And if you, if you go about removing that with God's help, you don't ever have to drink again. You don't even have to want to drink again. And then we got to the third step prayer, and he said, I want you to consider that. Where it says, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me what, as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help with thy love, thy power, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Um, he said, I want you to consider that well. And I want you to take a week to consider it. And here's the deal. It says, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. That means you get to do anything with me you want. Anything. Kill me, let me live. Sick, well, alone, with someone, here, there, anywhere. Anyhow. Anyway. It's your deal. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. My bondage truly is self. I'm so focused on me, I can't see you. You know, I spend my whole life pole vaulting over mouse turds. It's, uh,
1: the, the
0: problem is that when I, when I look at my own problems, all of which are of my, of my own making, I want to lend drama to them to apparently lend credibility, lend credibility to my life, and it doesn't make any difference." It was interesting because I was telling Diane, she, she, she was asking me, do you get nervous when when you do this? And I went, it really doesn't make any difference. <laughs> it really doesn't. Um, I think that God thinks that this is all a pretty big joke if you want to know the truth. Uh, <laughs> Uh it's just not necessary to put all that drama in your life. I'll tell you, at some point in your sobriety, you'll start looking at your energy and what's available. And and you'll start seeing what you want to lend your energy to. Uh, and, and you'll look at some things that you've done in the past, and you'll say, I really don't have to do this anymore. because they just absorb an enormous amount of energy, and they make me tired. And let me just throw something in here. When you're working with somebody... I'll give you a good barometer to tell whether they're trying to get well or not. When you walk away from someone that you're working with, and you feel less energy than when you started, they're probably yanking your chain, okay? And if you feel energized when you walk away from them, they're probably trying to get well, and why don't you see if that works? You know, I used to work with people, and I'd walk away from them, and I'd just feel like somebody yanked me through a keyhole. It was just like somebody stuck you through a ringer and you'd come out of there and you'd just waste it, and they'd go, oh, this is great. Well, you can tell where they got all their energy, um, but if you got somebody really trying to get well, they'll walk away with as much energy as you do. You both walk away energized, and it's because you're not across cross purposes. Um, The business in the third step prayer about bearing witness to those I would help of thy love, thy power, and thy way of life means being an example. Let me be an example. Let people look at me and see that, that 19 years ago, this guy was all burnt out and had nowhere to go. And today through your love, my life is really significant. I mean, it's better than anything I've ever, I could have ever dreamed about. And let people see that, that there is hope, that there truly is hope in this. Um, there's a line in the book that says, and go on about the business of living. you ever see about it? People in Alcoholics Anonymous, will, uh, they'll get sober, but they won't do anything. I mean, they just sort of vegetate. Well, I'm sober. Uh That's great, but uh, <laughs> what are you going to do about it? Um, God gave us this wonderful gift of sobriety. And at least in my estimation, if if we don't go on about the business of living, which is what the direction is in the book, it's just like slapping God in the face. I mean, we've all been given all of these gifts and all these abilities, and if we just go park somewhere, we're never going to find out what they are. One of the greatest gifts that I have here is the ability to risk. Uh, I'm not afraid of things. I found out that you can, that you can fail all you want to and people don't shoot you. Uh, you can risk all you want to and people are just amazed at what you do. Uh, it's cause you don't have to be afraid of it. And you don't, you know, you, you, you're not too old, you're not too young, you're not too, too newly sober or too newly sober, you're not too anything. Uh, if you're sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, God works in your life, and I would, I would strongly suggest that you go on about seeing what you really are capable of. Uh, if God truly is at the bottom of this program, why don't you get out and find out what you can do? I mean, don't be standing at the end of your life saying, I never took a chance. Because we've been given the freedom to do that. And it's exciting. And if you treat, if you're a, not afraid to risk, life can be a real adventure. And, and I will make these suggestions to you. And, and if you want to try them and if you don't want to, don't. But I can tell you it's pretty exciting to try them. And, and the only trick is that you have to walk through your own fear. And that's really not that big a trick. It's Sometimes it's getting one foot in front of the other, but you can do it. Go out and see what you're capable of. God didn't give you all the sobriety just so you could park in an AA clubhouse for the rest of your life. Well, I should have never got off on that. Uh, <laughs> um, well, as long as I'm off on it. Uh, <laughs> You know what Alcoholics Anonymous likes to track? Uh, all the people who want to get well hang around with the people who want to get well, and all the bullshitters hang out with the bullshitters. You ever notice that? Always look and see who you're sitting next to.
1: Uh, <laughs> uh,
0: and as long as I mention that. Uh, this guy used to come up to me and he'd go, what step are you on? And I'd go, well, I don't know. And he would he would look at me and uh, he would say, uh, he would always accuse me when I was first in A of only having three steps in my program. And he'd say, if you only have three steps in your program, don't call it Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, we had this sort of tough love. In our groups, where people just um, people want you to live, you know, uh, it's not it's simple, but it's not easy to follow all this stuff. Uh, this is a real spiritual regimen to live by the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's a wonderful and just immensely rewarding way of life. But it's not easy. It's just simple. It means that we constantly have to walk through our egos and we constantly have to walk through our fear. And as a result of that, our lives become immeasurably better. That we don't live hidden in the corner anymore. You know, if God gave me the gift of sobriety, I do not have to hide out in the closet. Uh, I went and took the third step with my sponsor and it, it really was scary for me because I thought he told me my life would change if I if I made that decision. And he said that I had to get down on my knees with him and hold his hands and say this prayer to him. And he said if you do that, your life's going to change. And I believed him and I was afraid of him. Um, I don't want to let go of anything that I have. You know, every once in a while, uh, God will say. Let go of that, Bob. I've got something a little better for you. (laughs) And I'll go, no, thank you. (laughs) And he'll say, no, no kidding, Bob. Let go. (laughs) And I'll go, uh, uh, stay away from me. (laughs) And he'll go, let go now, Bob. I want you to have something better. And I'll go, I don't want anything better. I want what I have. And just leave me alone. And he'll go, let go now or I'll have to take it away from you. And I'll go, no, you won't. (laughs) And then he'll rip it from my bloody fingers (laughs) and give me something better, Um, which shows you how grown up I am. Um, I have always kind of wondered. If I would ever get to a place in sobriety, I'm going to go ask a guy with 42 years down there. If you ever get to a point where you can stop doing this stuff, uh, and if I ever do get to that point and it works, I'll give you all a call. (laughs) (laughs) And I know I won't have to do that. Um, My sponsor told me I had to write an inventory, uh, and I said, well, there's all these guides around and stuff. And he said, no, you have to do this out of the big book. And there are instructions in there for writing it. And he said it's just a grudge list um, and it has to do with people, institutions, and principles, and why you're mad at them and what they affected your self esteem, your security ambitions, personal or sex relations um, or your pocketbook um, and then uh, and then I want you to go back through each one of those resentments and see. Uh, where you are selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, or frightened in each one of those instances. And so I did that. Took me a couple of months. Now those are the instructions. Uh, it comes down in four columns. The first one is what you're mad at. Second one is, is, uh, why you're mad at them. You don't have to spend a lot of time there because it doesn't make any difference uh the third one, which says where you how it affected you is interesting, and the fourth one's really an eye opener uh and then that's what and that fourth column is What am I up to okay what is it that I'm afraid of losing or what it, what am I trying to do here uh and that's usually where you find your amends also. So I, I wrote that and then I came back to him and, and I said, I'm done. And he said, No, you have to write a fear inventory. And I said, No, I'm not afraid of anything. And he said, Really? And I, and I said, Well, you know my history. I was a bill collector on the north side of Chicago and I, you know, I'm absolutely fearless. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: and he said, Well, how about snakes? And I said, Uh, what kind of (laughs) snake? And he said, rattlesnakes. And I said, "Um, I wouldn't want to be in a closed space with one. And he said, well just for the fun of it, write down snakes. And I said, okay. And he said, how about spiders? And I said, you mean like black widows? And he said, yeah. And I said, I wouldn't want to get bitten by one. And he said, well write down spiders. And so I wrote down spiders, and he said, how about failure? Oh, cheap shot.
1: (laughs) Uh,
0: uh, Yeah. Um, People always, you know... uh, When I was a kid, uh, I don't know why it was, and maybe I was just a bad apple or something, but people would come up and take this shot at you about you're going to wind up just like your dad. I mean, that's a hell of a thing to tell a 10-year-old kid. Um, And he said, write down failure. How about inadequacy? (sighs) Uh, Yeah, you know, I never really thought I was... as good as other people, um, even in sobriety, incidentally. And and then I found out that my first, my first response to everyone is to compare myself with them. And that's one of those energy-reducing uh, exercises. I am me. I am what God made. And I am a little different than you in some respects. But we are truly all the same. Uh, and I am no better or no worse than you. Uh, God has no grandchildren. We're just, we're just all the same. We just look a little different. We're a little different age, and we're a little different this and a little different that. But so we are truly all the same. Uh, and he said, "What about women?" Yes. I had always been afraid of women. Um, How about little children? Well, just the real small ones because I'm afraid I'm going to drop them. How about homosexuality? Well, you know, I didn't know much about it and it scares me. He looked at me and he said, Is there anything you're not afraid of? Well, I don't think so. Um, it's interesting, and, and look at a drunk and see this. I mean, it, I I would encourage you all to test everything that the big book says. Here's what it says about fear. It says fear is an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence is shot through with it. It's true. Every drunk I ever met lived in just abject fear of everything. We live in fear. I don't want to live that way anymore. And it talks about placing our reliance upon God, and at once we begin to outgrow fear. Uh, People say, well, really, why aren't you afraid to stand up in front of groups? And I will give you the exercise, and then you will have the benefit of it, okay? And it will probably work for you just as well as it works for me. Before I get up and talk, I say, God please make me an instrument of thy will. Um, and uh and uh help me to carry your message, even if it makes me look like a fool. Okay, which is my worst fear. And I I always feel like a child because I have this view of God as a father. And and I feel like I have one arm around his leg. And he has one hand on my shoulder, and that I am in his presence, and that nothing can touch me, that he doesn't want to touch me, and that his his interests for me are only the best. And it's real hard for me to be afraid under those circumstances. I'm not trying. To, I'm not up here trying to protect my ego, and I'm not up here trying to entertain you. I'm really just trying to share with you that God wants us all to be sober, and if we're willing to participate in some spiritual growth, which only requires us to follow the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in their directions, that our lives will become better. And it is my experience that if I can learn the stewardship required to handle the gifts that God can give, them, give me, he will give them to me but he will not give me something that will kill me. Now, when I got sober, I wanted a million bucks, a Ferrari, a nymphomaniac, and a mansion, (laughs) Um, any one of which would have killed me on the spot. (laughs) Thank you. God didn't give me any of those things. The last part of the inventory is, uh, is called a sex inventory. And it's, um it's really about relationships for me. It says when I'm, when I've had relationships with other people, are they selfish or not? Uh, did I unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? You know, the first time I wrote an inventory, excuse me, I, I, Looked at it, and I went, yeah, I did. I unjustifiably aroused jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness. And the, all my relationships were selfish. They were really just to see what I could get out of them. I um, uh, It asked me where I was at fault and what I should have done instead. And I was at fault by using them like that. And what I should have done instead in many cases was not to have done anything with them or not ever have gotten into them. Because my motives were bad from the very beginning. You know, and when I was about, uh, I think like 12 years sober, I was in the middle of an inventory. I was, I write an inventory almost once a year. But when I was about 12 years sober, I was going back through that. And I was going, do I unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? And it hit me just like somebody dropped an anvil on me. You know, that's how I know how to have relationships. Uh, I always thought that if you were in a relationship with me and you ever got a good look at me, you are going to be out of there. And so what I had to do was to keep you off balance. And I can do that with jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness. Um, If I'm in a relationship with a woman and I want her off balance, I'll tell her about what some other woman thought of me. Um, I'll, or I'll come back and at night and have some lipstick on my shirt or something like that or smell like perfume or whatever. And just make no big deal out of it. Keeps them right back on their heels. Or bitterness. Uh, I'll just say, hey, and I used to do this and I'm not proud of it. I used to say, if you don't like this relationship, there's no anchor on your ass. Out the door. You don't like it, get out uh, suspicion. Why don't you tell me you love me? I don't know maybe I don't I don't know i I was twelve years sober and I was divorced and i was uh and I had met a woman that uh that I really wanted to be with a woman I wanted to spend the rest of my life. And I didn't have the vaguest idea. I didn't even know where to start. Um, and I went to a person that I believe was really knowledgeable about relationships, who was uh, a, uh, and this will get you up in the air, a therapist. <laughs> uh, because my 11-step told me to do it. Because I asked in my 11-step every day to teach me how to have a relationship. And I went to this woman who was this sort of Mother Earth type, who was an old RN and a doctor of psychology, and she was saying, Bob, you have some interesting ideas about relationships. Screw it, I'm out of here. It's not the primary issue. Uh, she said, have you ever learned how to communicate? And I went, well, I don't know. And she said, uh, will you ask, will you ask your girlfriend to come over here? And she would sit us down across the table and say, Lori, tell Bob what you think. <laughs> and she'd go, well, Bob, there's this and this and this. And then she'd say, Bob, tell Lori what you think about that. And I'd go, well, Lori, I just said da-da-da-da-da. And then she'd go, and Lori, what was your intent in there? And Lori go, da-da-da-da. And, and Bob, how do you feel about that? And I'm sitting there, and I'm just dying a thousand deaths. And she said, that's communication. She said, the other thing is that every relationship you've ever been in in your life, you've had one foot out the door. Oh, why don't you get both feet in the door and really participate? And so that's what I did. I got both feet in the door and said, I'm not going anywhere. And if there's a problem in this relationship, then we need to sit down as difficult as that may be. And talk to each other about how to resolve that. And if we can't find resolution in that, we need to go find someone who will moderate this conversation and help us find resolution. And that's what I do. Um, yeah, I really don't like to be, or didn't like to be 12 years sober and not know a damn thing about having a relationship. That's embarrassing. I mean, when you're ten years sober, you figure you know everything in the whole world.
1: Um,
0: um, There's a thing on the end of the inventory that we always call take it to the grave stuff. It usually has something to do with sex. Um, There's only so many ways you can do that, folks. And your sponsor probably knows all of them. if you're going to go fifth step and be embarrassed about it, get that stuff out of the way first so you can enjoy the rest of your fifth step. Otherwise, you will worry about it all the way through. And uh, and it's unnecessary. It's just, I have a good friend who's a priest, and I said, you know, when you listen to confession, have you heard anything new? And he said, not after about the fifth one. <laughs> and uh, and I think that's true. You know, human behavior has a lot of parallels. And it just, you know, how many things can you do? My fifth step with my sponsor, I was afraid to because he was the only guy I'd ever let in very close. And, uh, and when I was done with it, I believed that he was going to get up and tell me how bad I was and that I never wanted to talk to me again. And instead he put his arms around me and told me he loved me and that I was glad that, that he was glad I had done that. I went home to do my sixth and seventh step, uh, it says taking the book down from the shelf. We review the first five proposals. So I put the book up on the shelf and took it back down because uh, I don't want to miss anything. I thought maybe there's something magic in that. I just, you know, they really impressed on me to follow the directions, and that that's my intent, and it works. Okay, and it works for everyone, incidentally. um uh, It says that we ask God uh, that we become willing to remove all those things which he's found objectionable, and then we ask him to remove it in the seventh step prayer, which I did. Eight says we made a list of all persons we'd harmed, became willing to make amends to them all. The next line in the book is we did it when we took inventory. It's always a surprise to people. If you have written an inventory out of the book, you probably have the majority of your amends list. Okay? Then all you have to do, and this is what my sponsor taught me, I mean it's nothing I ever, nothing up here that I say is original by the way. This is all something that I've learned from someone else. Um, he said, go through that amends list and see what the harm is. Okay? So, so I had to go through each one of those resentments and see where I harmed someone and what the harm was, and in particular, because when I go to someone to make amends, I have to know why I'm there. I'm not going in there and go, I think I really hurt you, but I don't know how, and uh, would you give that some thought and tell me what I can do about it? <laughs> People are going to go, right, what did they teach you there? Um, so I had to know what I was doing before I went there. Um, uh, I had to go see my father at the Grand Army home. And and when I talked to my sponsor about it, he said, why isn't your dad on your men's list? And I said, because he's the guy that did all the harm. You know, I was just a kid, and he was the guy that abandoned me, and he's the guy that used to call me up drunk on my birthday and slobber all over the phone. And I just don't think I ever harmed him. And he said, well, what did you do when he called you up? And I said, I'd hang up on him. And he said, you know, as uh as drunk and as out of control as your dad was, he always tried to touch you every year on your birthday. And he was trying to communicate with you and tell you that he loved you and all that. Even in as bad a condition as he was, he always tried to touch you. What did you do? Well, I just hung up on him. And uh, and he said, Well, uh, you owe him an amend for not allowing him near you because of his alcoholism. And I said, well, he's already had this stroke and he's not capable of understanding any of this stuff. And he said, what difference does it make? When we make amends, we clean off our side of the street. We don't clean off someone else's side of the street. We do ours. And he said, I don't care if he understands or not, go make amends to him. So I got in my car and drove to Wisconsin to make amends to him. And when I went to see him, he was in a wheelchair. And I walked in, and I said, "Is Bob Olson here, and that's his name also. And, uh, and I said, That's him over there. And I went over there, and he just sort of looked up at me for a minute, and I said, Hi, I'm your son, Bob. And I'd like to talk with you. And we went off in the corner in his wheelchair, and I said, I'm an alcoholic, which is what the book says I should explain when I'm about making amends. I said, I'm an alcoholic, um, and I want to talk to you about some ways that I've harmed you. And when I told him that I was an alcoholic, he got very sad, and I'm absolutely certain that he understood. And I said, but I have found a way of life where I don't have to drink anymore. And I found it in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he became very animated. And I said, I believe I've harmed you because I've held you at arm's length because of your alcoholism. And I didn't understand it until it was our alcoholism. And I regret having done that. And I am willing to do anything that's necessary to balance the books. Uh, it wasn't long after that that he was unable to understand, but I knew he understood. And I'm glad, I'm really happy that I had the opportunity to do that, as difficult as it was. When I got sober, I owed a lot of amends, financial amends, big ones. Back then, you know, as in 1973, I owed $14,000 and Two and a half years later I was still trying to pay it off and I was on a regular schedule where I was paying out so much every payday. And I got about $2,500 left. And, uh, and I was down at York Street, which is kind of the AA mother house in Denver. And I was telling everybody what a big damn deal I was. And, uh, how good I had been about paying off my amends and everything. And anyway, they had a boat show in Denver. I've always been nuts about boats. And, uh, and we rarely went anywhere during those years because we, I had to pay so much off in amends. And, and anyway, we decided to go to this boat show on the Bassmasters. We're having a raffle on a bass boat and it was like three tickets for ten bucks, I think. And, and they had ten bucks of my money before I remembered pulling it out of my pocket. And I was cursing myself. For having given that money away. And the next day they called me up and told me I won it. And I went down to the, 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 uh, sporting goods store where the boat was and asked them, asked the Rebel Bats boat dealer how much that boat was worth. And he said, $2,400. And then this Texan came up to me and he said, Would you like to sell the boat? Well, now I had my two sons with me. And they were crawling around in the boat going, gee, is this ours, Daddy? Are we going to have this boat? we Are going to go fishing? Isn't this wonderful? Gee, this is just really great. And this Texan's going, you want to sell that? And I said, for how much? And he said, I'll give you $2,500 for it. Um, So what do you do? Huh? You take the boat and continue to pay your amends? sell the boat and pay off your amends and hope you get a boat? (laughs) (laughs) Huh? I can tell you what I did. I sold the boat. And I wanted that more than anything in the world. Um, You know, it was uh, probably a year later I got a 17-foot cobalt that would you could troll it with that boat at about sixty miles an hour. It had a V8 Ford in it. It was geez. oh geez. And uh, let me share something else with you about that. Last winter, my my son, uh, although he thought he did it right, didn't take all the water out of the motor. And it gets very cold in the mountains in Colorado. And it broke the block. Okay, and he was afraid to call me, my oldest son. And uh, and finally he did, and he said, Dad, I broke or I cracked a block on the boat. Uh, I'm really sorry. I don't even know what to tell you. I'll take care of it. And I said, Don't worry about it. And he said, Why not? And I said, Because the day that I allow something to get in between the relationship that you and I have is the day that I've forgotten everything that I ever learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't care about things. I truly don't. You know, it's nice to have them, but I can't attach my ego to them. It's about me and God and booze. Okay? Uh, five years ago, I had a business that failed. I was the guy that sold the toasters to the savings and loans. <laughs> And boy, did the wheels come off of that deal. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I wound up on a quarter of a million bucks. And I'm going, now what do I do? I'm 13 years sober. I'm in debt up to my years. I had started a little silk screening company and I was doing some t-shirts for people. Um, and what I did was I became willing and I started to pay. And uh and a year and a half later it was gone. And the little silk screening company is now a contractor for Ocean Pacific and Google Boy and Gitano. And I print forty thousand shirts a day. Um and I don't know anything about the screen printing but
1: <laughs>
0: I i mean, a guy named Olson from Wisconsin in the garment business is strange enough.
1: <laughs> but uh,
0: I went to my sponsor and I said, Don, you know, uh, I remember how tough it was to pay off that $14,000 when I got sober. And here I got saddled with a quarter of a million bucks and it was gone in a year and a half. How do you explain that? And he said in his customary response, it doesn't require explanation. And I said, no, tell me, how can that happen? He said, it's very simple, Bob. God's got all the money he needs. God's got all the money he needs. You know, I've been talking too long here, and I'd like to tell you about 10, 11, and 12, but I i would I would much more like to tell you about today um, when i was uh when I was in the depths of alcoholism active alcoholism, I used to every once in a while be able to dream about how I truly wanted to be and where I wanted to live and how I wanted my life to be. And on those occasions when it would work, and those were not, those were few and far between. I would sit there and think about myself in living with a woman that I lived in a nice, clean house with a couple of sons that I could teach how to hunt and fish, and uh, and that it would be nice and clean and quiet, and uh, that there was love and understanding and communication and things like that in that house. And that, uh, that maybe I could be in business for myself. And that my peers, that I would have the respect of my peers. Um, and that uh, maybe even a sports car or something, you know. Uh, but that my life would be quiet and meaningful. And my life is like that today. You know, I live I live in a real nice house, it's nice for me, uh, with a woman that I'm absolutely nuts about, that I will talk to even in the toughest of times, <laughs> and that we will sit down and try and repair our relationship on an ongoing basis. You know, it's truly alright to love your significant other. <laughs> It is. And it is truly all right to try and help them make their life as meaningful as possible and to make their life as happy, joyous, and free as you can. And that the greatest, that the greatest joy comes from helping others, not helping ourselves. And that is the truth. And if you don't believe it, compare them. I have five sons. Twenty-eight. 23, 3, and 2 that are 10 weeks old.
1: <laughs>
0: well, you don't think it falls off when you're 50. <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> um,
0: I'll tell you what, the twins are named Andrew and Alexander, and I'd show you all a picture, but it'd take too much time. Uh... <laughs> And people are coming out and going, Andrew and Alexander, very tricky, AA. We never even thought about it. Uh, Anyway, they are the joy of my life. Um, I have a wonderful relationship with all five of them. Uh, What I really want to share with you is that is that this is about following the directions. No, they... Uh, when Bill Wilson sat down, he took a lot of stuff from, from the book of James and Emmett Fox and he took a lot of different stuff and they were all these old spiritual principles that have been working for people, uh, for millennia. Uh, these are things that have made people's lives better, not just alcoholics, but people's lives for thousands of years. The basic same principles. And he just put them in an order that makes sense to alcoholics. So, so there's a description in the second step. Uh, and it talks of, it, they're called a the bedevilment. Um, and it talks about people who make heavy going out of life and people who have trouble with relationships and they can't seem to be of real help to other people and they're prey to misery and depression. And see, the difference is and and then and then, in the page before that, it talks about it talks about uh these people with power, peace, happiness, and the sense of direction, and the difference between the people who have the power peace, happiness, and the sense of direction and the people who are making heavy going out of life and who are prey to misery and depression is the consciousness of the presence of God, okay. There's a line in the book that says, willingness is the key. And when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I always wondered why. What's to do? I mean, what's that about? It's a willingness to practice those principles the way they're laid out. Now, you may not believe what I have told you here today. And you are welcome to do that. But if you have even a fragment, Of curiosity. Why don't you start at the forward to the first edition? It won't hurt and it wouldn't take any more than six months if you only work at it an hour a week. And do exactly what it says and see what happens in your life. The greatest gift that I can give you is what I have received. Um, I live a life that is so are significantly better than anything I would have ever given myself. That I can't even begin to tell you the joy I have in that when I have enough presence of mind to see what I have. So if you have some curiosity, try it. And thanks for inviting me here.